This is On Call with Dr. Dave, and today we have Nurse Ruth on the call with us. Nurse Ruth, thank you for coming on. Thank you. Glad to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I was born and raised in Michigan, and that's where I did my nursing training back in Michigan. I've been a nurse for 42 years now, um, most of it in intensive care. But just recently, a year ago, COVID really wiped us out. You had a lot of nurses that it just tested you physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. So I became a case manager about a year ago because I did over two years of COVID and it just couldn't do it anymore. I've heard that from a lot of people. It, it yes. like you said, it tested everybody, whether you were directly involved with COVID wards or just healthcare in general during that time. It was very trying. Were you directly involved in COVID care? Yes, I was in the intensive care unit. Mm -hmm. Yes, so we had plenty of patients that were ventilated. Many patients died. Some survived to die later. We do have some cases where they actually survived many months later, and you hear the good stories that, that they're doing okay. So, Yeah, that, uh, was that the portion of your career that you saw the highest mortality? Yes, most definitely. Most definitely. And you could sort of tell when a patient first came in whether they were going to make it or not. I mean, you prayed that they would, but, you know, the signs just point. You watch them deteriorate and you just know they're not going to make it. But, of course, you can't let them know that. You can't let the family know that. You just have to be there to support them through whatever happens. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, as much as we want to know who's going to make it or not, Sometimes we're wrong, so we don't want to give people false hope, but we definitely want to give people false uh, despair either. Yep, exactly, exactly. When you think back on your career as a nurse, what are the stories that stick out to you? Well, I did have a patient once, a male patient, that we had put a urinary catheter in, and when I went to take it out, he started bleeding. So you're going, okay, how do I compress this to stop the bleeding? And so ended up, you know, putting pressure like up above on his bladder, took a few minutes for it to stop. And he was able to go home. But he said, how long have you been doing this? How many of these have you done? I said, I've been a nurse for 42 years. I've done quite a few. Has that ever happened? That was the first time it had ever happened to me. He says, well, I'm telling you, if I ever come back into the hospital again, that is one thing I do not want put in me. <laughs> so that one was a cute one. And then when I, this is my own personal story. All three of my children were C-sections. And so after the third one, they're getting ready to take that Foley catheter out. And you know, it has a balloon on the end with the water in it that holds it in place. You put a balloon on that um, spot and you take the water out. You're supposed to be able to pull that balloon back out. Well, mine, she tugged on it tried again, tugged on it, tried it again, tugged on it. And I said, just get a pair of scissors and cut it. Because if you tug one more time, I'm going to have to kick you in that because that hurts. And you have plenty of patients that accidentally or on purpose pull those out with that balloon inflated. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how you could, of course, I guess they don't realize how much it's going to hurt till after the point. And I bet they don't do that again after that, you know, so... <laughs> And so I've never had to cut one before. So if you cut it, just it just drains the fluid out just naturally. Yes, and you can yeah, pull it just easily. make sure you hold on to it so it's not going to go back up inside. <laughs> 
because that will be a whole other story that you'll have to yeah, that's take a, care of. That's a uro urology consult right there. <laughs> yes, most definitely. Most definitely. And then um, with the COVID that you were talking about, you know, you have to wear your N95 mask, you have to wear your goggles, you have to wear the cap, the gown, the gloves, the whole thing. But when you're going into a patient's room where they are on a ventilator, or if they're going to be getting a breathing treatment, so you're going to have nebulized, you know, out into the air, or a breathing treatment, you have to wear one of those pappers, which looks like the astronaut helmets that they wear. You can't hear anything when you put that on because there's a fan inside to keep it cool, so you don't suffocate inside it when you're using it. And you cannot, I could stand right beside you, Dave, and I would not be able to hear a word of what you're saying. If you're a good lip reader, you could, but you've got that N95 mask on. So we found if we touched helmets, we could talk to each other. So anybody going by or being in the room would look like, what are they doing? But that's the only way you could hear each other is to touch your helmets. So I'm sure they thought that was hilarious trying to figure out what we were doing in the room. But, you know, I did see that in a sci-fi movie one time or a TV show where people in these astronaut, like these like astronaut suits, their comms went out and they couldn't hear each other. And they did that same thing. They touched uh -huh. like their helmets together and then the vibrations moved back and forth and they're able to communicate. So right. it's, it's very right. advanced of you to touch helmets and talk like that. Yes. Well, because, you know, you're intubating a patient. You need to be able to communicate with oh, each definitely. other. The doctor needs to be able to tell you, we need this, we need to do this, you know, so on and so forth. So kind of sweet. Yeah. <laughs> That's a cute yeah. little image. You just yeah. like leaning, leaning your heads to each other and yeah. talking. Yeah. And luckily we all like each other yeah. when you work together as a team, you know, in the ICU. But yeah. And, you know, on that note, I do, you have a lot of men that are very, very, they keep that gown down. They don't want you to see anything. Well, sometimes you have to do that in order to be able to take care of them. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I tell them, you don't have anything different than anybody else. It's all <laughs> the same. Oh, but you haven't seen mine, they say. And it's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <Okay. laughs> yes. Yeah. I've had patients before. I had a patient back um, east when I was working. I guess she was like sort of up higher in the society. I don't know if she was like a chamber member or what, but she expected to get better care than anybody else down the hall. And she goes, do you realize who I am? And I says, no, but do you put your underwear on any different than anybody else? No. I said, then you get treated exactly the same. We don't do that where, you know, you try to treat everybody the same, you know, doesn't matter. Yeah. Patients often ask me, you know, what would I recommend to my own mother or sister? And I tell them I would recommend the same thing I'm recommending to you. I don't, there's not a tiered system of healthcare in my mind. Everybody gets the best care I can come up with. There's no you're a VIP, so you get better treatment. Right, right. And then we have had, you know, I think as a society, America, we're just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So we, we say, well, they are a person of size, to be politically correct. Because like at our hospital, the MRI will only accommodate so much weight and so much, you know, inches across. And so we've had plenty of those women 
especially women, because it's harder to get that catheter into them, where you almost feel like you're a minor with your helmet and the light on, and you're going in to try to see if you can find that spot. You've got two or three nurses in there, one holding each leg, one holding the belly, and you're just, and we're usually 99% of the time successful in getting those catheters in, so. I do recall that we would out, I've heard the nurses talk multiple times about getting the Foley catheter in. People would ask if it was a two-person or three-person job. Oh, and I was going to say, and they say it all depends, <laughs> right, on what uh, what is going on with that. But, you know, we've had um, my one other friend that I work with, we had a patient who she could not open her legs enough to get in there. So she actually put one in from behind. I have never seen that before, but she was successful. In no, doing that's an that. advanced maneuver right there. Yes, definitely. <laughs> we had three or four of us in there, but... We got that taken care of, so. <laughs> gotta do what you gotta do, Good job done. That's right. I was curious, just because you were on the COVID wards and you, you dealt with that, uh, you know, kind of directly. I just remember when I would go to the ICU before COVID, there were patients that were on respiratory precautions and those patients tended to get fewer visits by everybody. You didn't get the, the drop bys quite as often because every time you went in that room, you had to go into the negative pressure room. You had to gown right. up. You had to put the mask on. You had to put the hat on. And so I remember a study one time that talked about how those patients got inferior care because of their precautions, which were necessary. But when you're in the COVID wards and everybody has the same precautions, do you feel like everybody kind of got... I, I don't even know how to phrase that. Did they get worse care because of all of the precautions you had to take to protect yourself? Or was it just everybody had COVID, so you just kind of like went room to room to room because you weren't worried about cross-contaminating? Right, because I mean, if you're going from one COVID room to the next COVID room, you're not going to be spreading anything different than than what they already have. But you are warned, you have to limit your time in that room get in, get what you need to get done and get back out. Because if your nurses start getting sick, then you're going to be short staffed. And then what are you going to do? Because your COVID, if you get the COVID, they would have you out for 10 days. So if you're already short staffed, then you lose a couple nurses because of that. You're really struggling because then you know that your care is not going to be as best as it could be because you just don't have the resources to do. And of course, you know, we had to limit visitors. Visitors were not allowed in the rooms, period, in the beginning. Um, luckily, all of our rooms had the windows. So there were plenty of times where you would open the window and the family would come up to the window and sort of scoot the bed over close enough so at least they could see each other and they would talk to each other on the phone while they were conversing back and forth. But there were plenty of patients that, especially when you were taking them off from everything and you knew they were going to pass. I didn't care. I stayed in there with them and you hold their hand while they take their last breath and there's nobody else that can be there. Because sometimes when that's decided, the family doesn't have time to get there to be in with them when that happens. So that was one of the bad parts is you have patients that are dying alone. And that yeah, is I just... Think, I, I think for at least... The in my view, I, I wasn't in the COVID wards. I would go see patients with COVID, but I'd be in and out. And I just, I can't imagine the isolation of just being stuck in a room, the lack of visitors, the lack of family members being able to see their loved ones and hold their hands. And I think right. 
just the emotional stress is probably what pushed everybody to the edge with nursing and doctors and patients. I, I just can't imagine it's those times that are usually they bring families together and it couldn't bring people together. And I can't imagine anything harder than that to not be there for your loved one. Right. And then, like I said, there were plenty of times I remember a patient once he did not want to be put on the ventilator, no matter what, did not want to be put on the ventilator. Um, but we got to the point where there was nothing more we could do. We had reached our limit. And so he knows he's going to die. And he says, there's no other, there is nothing else we can do. This is the choice. So he says, okay, well, we do give them medication as often as we can. So they are not going to be uncomfortable. They're not going to feel that, you know, that air hunger and that they're struggling, you know, to breathe. And you're just in there with them and you just keep giving them the medicine and watch them take their last breath. But imagine that poor patient, there's nothing else we can do. Because chances are, if you put them on the ventilator, at least back in the beginning, we've done more strides now with it. But back in the beginning, it was even if you go on the ventilator, chances are you're not going to survive that. Mm -hmm. You know, so what a choice for a patient to have to to come up with. And usually I'm sure they're thinking about it as they're in there for day after day after day after day. But I'm sure until it comes right down to it and you can't breathe. We've had plenty of patients who are like, nope, that's it. I, I'll go on the ventilator. I'll do anything to live, you know. So that's always a struggle helping. And you've become close with these patients because you're in there, you know, day after day after day. You know, all the nurses are like a team. And when you lose someone like that, it's like you've lost a family member, you know, and you get close with their family and you just sit and you hug and you cry, you know. And then, of course, social working at our hospital is very, very good. They will sometimes have meetings afterwards to let everybody voice, you know, what's going on. And she will come down you know, around on a daily basis. How are you guys doing? What can I help you with? So our hospital is a very small hospital. So we're all pretty much family there, no matter what unit you work on. You get real close with the doctors on first name basis and, and that kind of stuff. So... Well, I do have one, not necessarily from working, but when I was going to nursing school, um, my very first semester, we dissected cadavers. And so you would see in the beginning of the semester, the school would buy bodies from Wayne State University there, and you would go in, and your team would pull your body out, work on your body. And the worst thing was is they had to preserve them in the formaldehyde, and I'm sure you've smelt formaldehyde before. I could not get that smell out of my nose for the whole semester. Everything you smelt smelt like formaldehyde. And then your final test, of course, was done on those bodies with those little pin flags. And you would have to identify an organ, a nerve, an artery, you know, whatever on your final test. But at the end of your day, you would put the formaldehyde, squirt that on them, and then put them back into their little like box until the next day when you would work on them, you know, and you just cannot get that smell out of your nose at all. And of course, when you cut on a cadaver, they don't bleed. You just get that clear fluid. So my second semester was uh, OB and we went in on a cesarean section. And so you're standing in the back, they cut and she bled from that incision and I hit the floor. Because you're not used to seeing 
blood coming out of that. And, and they're like, get her out of here, get her out of here. You know, it's interesting how quickly you get used to things. I'm sure the first time you saw that blood and you passed out. Yes. And then the next time you were there, you probably maybe got slightly queasy, maybe nothing uh -huh. at all. And the third time you saw it, it just is it's just normal. normal. <laughs> yep, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Did you get hurt at all when you passed out? No. Thank goodness. And of course, and then you're embarrassed to go back to class the next time because everybody <laughs> knows that spreads like fire. Everybody knows, oh, yeah, you passed out <laughs> during your clinical rotation, you know. So, so I had one patient once. Um, this was back when people, doctors, patients could smoke in the hospital. And we had a patient who had had um, cancer of his throat. And so he had had um, that taken out. He had the spot where the tracheostomy was, and now it's just the stoma. So I went in the one time, and he's smoking through the stoma. I'm like, what are you doing? He goes, well, Ruth, think about it. If I smoke through my mouth, it's going to come right out the hole. If I want it to get into my lungs, I have to suck it you know, in through the stoma. And I thought, what if you accidentally lose grip on that and suck that down into your lung? You are going to be in. I said, and you shouldn't be smoking anyways. He goes, I already have cancer. He goes, I'm going to die anyways. I want to enjoy, you know, my last few years that I may have, you know, but that's when doctors would be sitting at the desk, cup of coffee, eating, smoking their cigarette, putting it out in the ashtray, you know. I remember a commercial where they showed a lady doing that oh, to yeah. show you just how how addictive cigarettes were. Yes. And I don't I don't think the younger generation understands that going to a hospital and seeing people smoke, even going to a restaurant and asking like smoking or non-smoking. My kids they have no sense of how commonplace it was exactly. to do something that caused cancer that was so destructive and was yet such a part of our lives. I don't even know if they know someone who smokes personally because it's not nearly as common as it used to be, as commonplace as it used to be. Right. It worked, apparently. That commercial worked. That scared yes. me. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, scared can, me I can still picture that lady smoking through her stoma. Yep. Yep. And, of course, you have to be careful. You've got oxygen in the hospital, yeah. and yeah. you're letting patients smoke, you know? So, because you hear all those horror stories where patients at home smoke and blow the house up. You know, they figure they're okay because they have like 20 feet of oxygen tubing. But you know how fast that fire can come up <laughs> that oxygen tubing to you? Yes. You know, so. I know some of Pam's stories revolve a lot around, she's been, um, she's had some combative patients uh -huh. that really, and, she, and I didn't realize how um, commonplace that was. Oh, yes. Yeah, how many nurses get assaulted yeah. all the time. Yeah, I was assaulted by a patient. He didn't do it on purpose. He had like a, a metabolic encephalopathy going on. So he was not in his right mind. But it wasn't my patient. I was in helping the other nurse put him in restraints. And I didn't have a hold of his leg tight enough. And he picked that leg up and pushed me. And the nurse that was in there with me, it says it almost looked like one of those cartoons where the body goes flying and you see like the lines going, whoo, as they're flying across the room. And I hit with my back on the handle on the door. Ooh, and I almost passed out because I went down. And for a second, you're like, okay, what just happened? One second, you're there holding the leg. The next second, you're sitting down on the floor. 
And so they had called a uh, code alert. So everybody's coming in. Are you okay? Are you okay? But they're stepping over me because they need to get to the patient. So he's not gonna hurt anybody else. And I was out for about a month after that. I had a really nasty bruise on my back that I had to go to physical therapy to, and they had to use the little rolling machine to try to work that blood out of the tissue, you know, on there. So luckily I didn't break anything. They thought for sure that I would have like fractured a rib or something like that, but luckily I didn't. And he did come back into the hospital a bit after that, and he did apologize. And of course you accept his apology. You don't want to, you know, hold that against him. He wasn't in his right mind when that happened but you know and there have been yeah. plenty of patients you get those little old grandmas that weigh like 80 pounds mm -hmm. they turn into like the hulk when they have a <laughs> urinary tract infection and they're bound and determined mm -hmm. they're going to do something and it literally takes four of you to hold them down to restrain them so they're not going to hurt themselves or you you huh. know so because you're thinking, how can they be this strong? It is amazing <laughs> how strong they can be when you have to. Yeah. I, and I don't know how we fix some of the things. Because like you said, some people just aren't in the right mind when it happens. But you take doctors, nurses, technicians that go into it because they care so much about people and helping people. And then when they get hurt, I just it's a deep wound because we're such caring individuals. And to get hurt trying to help people just makes it even that much more difficult. And when they don't mean to, it's understandable, but sometimes you just get mean and people. Still, yeah, definitely. You know, <sighs> trying to think of some more robot security right. guards. That can yeah. Well, the, hus the hospital was nice and they did give us some training, a little bit of self-defense, you know, that you could do. And you learn from that situation that if a patient starts getting out of control, you get over as close to the door as you can. Do not let them trap you up against a wall or, you know, in the bathroom or anything. You get to where you've got an escape as quickly as you can. And don't try, you know, if you know the situation is not going to end good, you leave the room and you have them call security or have like a code alert. So you will have more people there that can help with it. But sometimes you don't know that the patient's going to, you know, explode no, yeah. and, and cause problems like that yeah. after, till after it's too late. But you get very good at learning how to try, how to tie restraints down, but yet with a slip knot so that if you need to release it quickly, you can release it quickly enough. So, so usually in the hospital, if they have a patient that needs to be restrained, they call the ICU nurses because we know <laughs> how to do it and we go down and help them. You're amazing. Down. <laughs> yes, you know. <laughs> and I wasn't even a Boy Scout. I was a Girl Scout, but I don't remember being taught knots in Girl Scouts. I don't think that's something they necessarily taught us to do. So. Yeah. Something they usually don't cover in nursing school. That's a on-the-job training right there. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> every patient's not going to like you. You might not, might not like every patient, but your job is to take care of them, and you just deal with it. You treat it with kid gloves, and, you know, I try to joke a lot with them, and that seems to put them at ease, and then, you know, they trust you a little bit more. You're not, you know. Well, like you so, said at the beginning, everybody gets treated the same, whether they're rich or poor, whether they're nice or an asshole, yep. they still get the same quality care that you can give them. Yep, exactly. And where we are, we <clears throat> deal with a lot of overdose patients. And of course, they're out of their mind 
you know, when they're going through withdrawal. Or we do have a program there where they do take in people that have problems with addiction, whether it be drugs or alcohol. And so you sort of get used to dealing with they're not going to be the same person, you know, a day or two later as they were when they came in, mm -hmm. you know. And you have a, a lot of people that come back numerous times. You know, sometimes you don't succeed the first time. And it may take you three or four times before you you finally succeed with it. You know, and that's a good feeling when you know that you've helped someone get through that addiction. And then hopefully they're going to be able to live better lives because they're not having that issue. Yeah. And I think that's what keeps us doing what we do is at the end of the day, we know we've helped. And so even the tough, tough hours or the tough times or the tough patients, there's enough of we helped somebody to keep us showing up for the next shift, the next day. Yep, definitely, because you'll have families come back in and thank you so much and bring you, you know, candy, flowers, you know, whatever. You'll get letters and cards from patients and families. Some of the patients come back in to see us, and at first you have to take like a double look, like, they don't you remember me? It's like, oh, give me a name, you know, because you deal with so many patients, there's no way that you can remember all, but they'll actually come back in to thank us. And that's, that's an awesome feeling too. So, so yeah, like a little, little shout out to nurses everywhere. And also to patients, if you've ever been in a hospital, write a note, show up and say, thank you. It does really help just the well being of the people caring for you to hear those uh, sentiments of gratitude. We can't right. afford to lose any more, you know, any more healthcare workers. You need to let them know just how appreciative we all are. Now, like, hey, you went above and beyond because that's what we try to do, or at least what I try to do. I try to treat my, treat my patients and families the way I would want to be treated or have my, my family member be treated. And you have to understand they're not probably the same when they're in the hospital as they are if you see them outside of the hospital because they're stressed and that stress level is going to cause them to maybe not be their same personality that they would be. So it's sort of nice to see them outside of the hospital and you see, oh, they really, really are a nice person. They just were really, really stressed. They may have gotten bad news. You know, they don't know if they're going to make it out of the hospital. So you have to sort of be understanding. And you know how they say that nurses make the worst patients? The I, worst or the best. I've had, I've had it go think, both ways. <laughs> see, in any I've ever done, I think that because we know what's going on on the other side. So like when I was in the hospital with my broken leg, I did not put the call light on once. I put it on once, accidentally <laughs> trying to change the TV channel. I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I didn't mean, no, 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 I don't need you. You know, because you know they're busy and you don't, you know, want to bother them knowing what's going on. So yeah, well, any you, of the, you deserve to bother them too. You deserve good care as well. Yep, yeah, exactly. And of course, I know everybody gets treated the same, but I think when you're an employee and you're in the hospital, you have all these people coming to visit and bringing you treats and, you know, all of that kind of stuff, you know. Of course, that's because they want you to hurry up and get back to work is why. <laughs> yeah, <they're laughs> yes, they don't want you to be sick, but let's go. When are you coming back? <laughs> well, Nurse Ruth, we thank you so much for coming on. We thank you for what you do and for sharing your stories with us. All right. Well, thank you for having me. It was fun. Hi, this is Dr. Dave. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Please rate, review, and share this episode so that we can continue to get you more stories in the future.